Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I think I have a wonderful surprise for you today. I'm on the phone with Billy Hayes, who is actually a longtime friend of mine. Billy Hayes has been writing, speaking, acting, and directing since the best-selling book he wrote about his experience in a Turkish prison. Midnight Express was made into an Academy Award-winning film in 1978. His other books include The Midnight Express Letters from a Turkish Prison, 1970-1975, and the sequel, Midnight Return. Hayes' has acted extensively in film, theatre and television and was honoured with a Best Actor Award for his 2006 performance in a tribute to Samuel Beckett. Shuffle, shuffle, a step. In 2010, the National Geographic series Locked Up Abroad gave Hayes a chance to retell his story, to a new worldwide audience. And Peter Peter Schaffes' Midnight Express Ballet, also based on his story, was performed... (laughs) What? That's a mind blower. I couldn't couldn't take that in. We'll talk about that. (laughs) Sure, sure. So the ballet, also based on his story, was performed at the London Coliseum in... 2013. Important is he is now performing his one-man show, Riding the Midnight Express with Billy Hayes, on the New York stage at the Barrow Street Theatre to audience and critical acclaim. Uh, After sold-out runs in London and Edinburgh's Festival Fringe, He's looking forward to touring Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, etc., etc. So, Billy, what an adventure! You're you're still totally relevant in 2015. Yes, I have a lot of etceteras, etceteras. Actually, we've been uh, since we wrote that. Uh, I've been down to Australia. I did a month uh, at the uh, International Comedy Festival in Melbourne which was quite lovely. Uh, I love working with an Australian audience, and uh, we had a lot of fun down there. And now we are getting ready to do a show in Boulder, Colorado, which, the uh, again, the irony is not lost on me that I'd be able to smoke weed legally with my audience in Boulder, Colorado, which... Wow. Yes, that, that's another one of those little things that quite blow my mind. But it's been good. It's been really quite, quite wonderful. I'm a lucky guy. Billy, for our young listeners, let's briefly go back 
to uh, what happened when you were when we were young. Yeah, um, I was I was in college at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Um, I was an English a journalism major. Just before graduation, I left school because I wanted to get out into the world and experience life so I could write about it. <laughs> surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. Mm-hmm. I was uh, arrested in Istanbul, Turkey in uh, October of 1970 and spent the next five years in jail and then got uh, very lucky and very desperate and I was able to escape. And uh, that, strangely enough, the, it was the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me was getting arrested. It led to uh, many books and a film, and uh, I learned a lot about myself in jail that I needed to learn. I actually met my wife, who I'm still married to now, in 1978 at the uh, Cannes Film Festival when uh, the movie Midnight Express premiered. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a ride, and it continues, and may it continue further. Wow, I didn't realize you met Wendy who really is a wonderful woman at the, at that was the premiere of the film Midnight Express, which yes. was directed by Alan Parker and written by Oliver Stone. Amazing. So, how did you feel about the movie when it came out? Well, I mean, it's a brilliantly made film, and it still stands up today. Alan Parker's an amazing director, and Brad Davis, who played me, you know, he put his heart and soul into that. And the music, Giorgio Moroder's music, you know, it won a lot of Oscars and such. I'm the least objective of viewers, and there are things about the film that bother me. The main thing that bothers me is the fact that you don't see a single good Turk in the whole film, and it creates this overall impression that Turkey's a terrible place and Istanbul's a horrible place and these are horrible people, none of which is true. I actually made three smuggling trips to Istanbul prior to getting arrested on my fourth trip. I spent a lot of time in Istanbul. I had Turkish friends. I had a Turkish girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I loved the city of Istanbul. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't say that when I wrote the first book, Midnight Express. I couldn't mention the fact that I had made three trips prior to this. So I had to start that book basically on my fourth trip getting arrested. And that's the focus of the book. Alan Parker and Oliver Stone then took my book and made their film. And they they had such a dark, horrible view of not just the prison, which isn't all darkness, by the way. Prison is life like anywhere else. You, you make it what you make it, but at the country. And when the movie came out, Turkey's tourism drops 95%. Wow. Yes, when Midnight Express came out in 1978. And to this day, they're still dealing with the fact that there are people who say, oh my God, Turkey, no, we'll never go there. We saw Midnight Express. And I always say, no, go there. You'll love it. It's an amazing country. I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking Greece and Turkey and the Armenians and all that sure. stuff that, that the Turks as a government and as a people have to deal with, just as we as a government and a people have to deal with our stuff. I'm just talking one-on-one with the people and the city. I love Istanbul. So that that horrible impression that the film left out there is still there. There are people who still see the movie because it's constantly being played. And unless they've either heard me or read one of the various things that I've written, the impression that the film makes of, of Turkey is it's not valid. The, the film is not valid to my experience. I've had 
Oliver, uh, Oliver Stone has since gone back to Istanbul at one point and apologized for what he called the excesses in the movie. He was also uh, promoting Alexander, his film, which was yes, part yes. of the world. So, so he had a dual edge of going back. But uh, Alan Parker, back way back when we were doing some publicity stuff after the film came out, he, I've heard him say that he felt that perhaps he was politically naive, not realizing the effect that a movie can have. Film is such a powerful medium. So my little voice saying that the film doesn't represent the country, that's only heard by, you know, fill in the blank, X number of people. Right. The movie, the impression that the film right. makes is very, very powerful. So that's my biggest problem. I miss the film, and the, the escape in the film is like an afterthought. They've got me skipping out the door with some keys. You know, <laughs> it took me five years and a very different escape to get out there. They've got me killing a guard in the film. Which that's not do. true. No, it's not true. I escaped off an island in a rowboat in a storm and ran through Turkey for three days and dyed my hair in Istanbul and swam a river into Greece. Made for Hollywood ending, actually. I was so surprised when they first showed me the movie uh, in a little screening room in New York. Alan Parker showed me the film uh, uh -huh. all by myself. I could barely breathe. When I came out of it, I was sweating. He said, well, well Billy, what, what do you think of the film? I said, uh, I, I guess I love the film. I miss my rowboat. I escaped in a rowboat off an island in a storm and rowed wow. to the mainland. It literally put my life back in my own hands again. It, it, prison takes so much out of you. Tell After us. a while, you either break or you get hardened in ways that you can't change. And I was at that point. I was so desperate after five years in jail. What, that, was, uh, it, what was it that was the most, uh, most spirit-breaking or strength-making. My, uh, I was in there, I'd, I'd been in there for a few years, and I was getting ready to, uh, but I was constantly trying to get out. I had various escape plans. At one point, my oldest friend in the world came to visit me, and he and I were going to, I'd, I'd gotten myself transferred to a, a mental hospital, which is right. actually shown in the film, very right. accurately, strangely enough. I discovered there's a clause in the Turkish law that says if you're judged to be insane... They can't keep you in prison. But if you're that crazy, they don't let you out on the street. They put you in this mental hospital called Bakarkoy. Yes. And I arranged with a doctor, I bribed the prison doctor, to get myself sent to Bakarkoy because I wanted to get a crazy report. Most of my friends back then would not think I'd have much problem getting a crazy report. Right. Then I got to Bakarkoy and saw the competition. This was a section for the criminally insane. That's why people were there. And it was off the chart. You know, you'd, you'd, I don't appreciate life until I lose it. I didn't appreciate the prison I was in until I was sent to the madhouse. Oh, wow. When I left the madhouse, I mean, after two weeks of insanity, I, they brought me back to the prison, and I got back, and I said to the guys, oh, God, it's so good to be back here. And they all looked at me like, the fuck are you talking about? It's like they hadn't been to Bakarkoy. You know, we don't appreciate what we have till we lose it. I say we. When it gets real personal, I go to the third person. I didn't appreciate anything. Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah. I didn't appreciate the United States with all the problems and all the things I protest. You know, I was a hippie back there in the 60s in the Vietnam War. All those protests. I didn't appreciate really what we had. I just took for granted all the good stuff. Then I lost everything in an instant. People and places and food and culture and law and language and social status. A white man in America. Oh. We just take for granted oh, all the things we have until mm -hmm. you realize, wow, we're so lucky here. 
Mm-hmm. I see what happens in other countries. I see the problems. I see the stuff that people live with. So prison kind of made me appreciate virtually everything, virtually the moment, which I just took for granted back then. Beautiful. I'm, I'm sorry I'm rambling here. No, I this my wife is... next to me. Wendy needs to like, give me an elbow to say you're rambling. No, no, this is good. This is the stuff I want. I want the stuff from the heart. I want... I want to know how it feels, how it yeah. felt, and who you've become, and and how it sculpted you, how it sculpted you, you know. Because it changed everything for me. Uh, I needed to go to jail. I mean, that sounds so strange. I was just running so fast. Life was so easy for me prior to prison. You know, I thought maybe I had problems, but I didn't. Everything was good. Everything was easy in school and girls and sports and all that stuff. And then suddenly, it wasn't easy anymore. And it forced me to examine, you know, who I, who am I? Like, what? Why am I here? Here in the in the sense of here in this cell, here in this jail, here in this life, here in this existence. All those metaphorical things. Prison gives you a lot of time to think, <laughs> and I needed it. I've been running. I was running so fast, and just constantly moving and, and doing and catching and eating and all that stuff that life had to give. And prison slowed me down and forced me to grow up and to take responsibility for my actions. Uh, I used to do a lot of college lectures, and actually I still do stuff with high schools and kids. And invariably, people say, well, do you have any message for these, these high school kids, Billy? It's like, yeah, tape it under your arms. They'll never search you there. <laughs> and, but the truth is, what? my message is do what you like and know what you're doing. And knowing what you're doing means you take responsibility for your actions because you have to live with the consequences. That's I never good. considered the consequences of my actions because I knew I was, you know, I knew I was way too smart and good looking to ever get arrested. And I really believed that right up until the moment suddenly my world collapsed. And then I had to face what I'd done. And the, I, I was arrested uh, in the afternoon. I spent a night in the local lockup prison. And a guy came and gave me a piece of paper. A guy from the American Council came and gave me a little piece of paper and a pencil and left me alone in this little locker room to write a letter home to my folks. And that's when I had to face what I've done, which is... How did you feel at that moment? It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Because I know the pain this letter is going to cause my parents. I have, I'm so lucky. I have such good parents. Mm. And to think what I'm about to put them through to write this letter... And that continued for five years. I mean, every day mm-hmm. they were there wondering what's happening to the sun. Every day uh, I caused the people who love me pain. Mm-hmm. That's the consequence of my action. So the, the message to the high school kids, they all know they're invincible and they can never be touched and right. all that stuff, which is good. I'm glad they have that attitude. But they also have to factor in uh, the reality of what you're doing because it's not just you. Your actions affect all the people who love you much less the people who don't, but the people who love you are going to suffer if you do something stupid. That gets through. That kind of gets through with a lot of uh, high school and college kids. Yeah. Rambling I, again, sorry. No, not, not <laughs> rambling. I, I, I feel that way too, Billy, that uh, once, you, once you allow people to love you, there's an enormous responsibility that comes with it. Yes, but the joy of people loving you and of you loving them, that's what I really learned in jail, that my, my reason for being is to love. That's simple. And I, I didn't really know that until getting down in the depths of a Turkish prison, and that's when I discovered it. And that's the most important thing I've ever learned. That's, if I have 
anything at all to, to give to the world, that's it. And I actually talk about that quite a bit in my show. And you, you, you went back to, you went back to Turkey. Actually, I mean, you actually lived your amends, and I'd love to hear about that. Well, uh, originally, I escaped in nineteen October nineteen seventy five. The movie, uh, the book came out uh, in seventy six. Then the movie came out in seventy eight, and when the movie came out the, at the Cannes Film Festival. Turkish people, a lot of people saw the film. There's a there's a scene in the film in the in you know, I was arrested and I, I originally I had a four year, two month sentence, and then fifty four days prior to going free, my sentence was changed. And Richard Nixon, the war on drugs, pressuring Turkey and all the foreign countries to increase their drug penalties, Turkey responded by changing my sentence and giving me a, a life sentence, which the same judge who sentenced me to my original four year sentence was forced by the high court in Ankara to issue this new life sentence. The only He said, I wish I'd retired before I have to issue this sentence. He wow. felt terrible. Wow. And, but the only thing he could do was to lower my life sentence to 30 years, which, thanks, I guess, 30 years life. But that scene, that courtroom scene, in the movie, Oliver Stone has got my character saying, you're a nation of pigs, I fuck you all, I fuck your sons, I fuck your daughters. It's like horrific stuff. Wow. Turkey saw that. They were so incensed that they issued an Interpol warrant for my arrest. Not when I escaped. Not when my book came out. But when the movie came out and they saw that scene with Oliver Stone's words, they issued an Interpol warrant that stood for the next 20 years. What I actually said in the courtroom is something about, you know, I've been, I've been in your jail for three years now. If you're going to sentence me to more prison, I can't agree with you. All I can do is forgive you. Wow. That's the other end of what the whole world heard me say from the film. And that's, I think that's the key moment in the movie Midnight Express when emotionally the audience is with, their, with the protagonist, they're with my character in the movie, and they're screaming at Tur your nation of pigs. I think that incensed the world against Turkey. I really do, the emotionality of that scene. And they put a warrant out for my arrest. It lasted for so many years. A couple, but I've been saying what I'm saying to you now in mm -hmm. one form or another since day one, which is the film doesn't represent the country. In 2007, I guess, a couple of Turkish policemen, guys who went to college in New York at John Jay, you know, criminology school, really, really smart dudes. I'm sure they're going into politics. Mm -hmm. They saw something on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. They saw me speaking on YouTube, talking about, similar to what I'm saying to you now, that the film doesn't represent the country and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a big conference was coming up in Istanbul in 2007. Uh, peace and global democracy, I believe. A thousand police representatives from 63 countries were gathering in Istanbul to, for this big conference. The world press was there covering it. And these four Turkish policemen thought... Let's bring Billy Hayes back and have the world press hear what he's been saying and put it on a big stage. So they contacted me and invited me back, and it took a little while before I really ascertained that this isn't one of my old college friends playing a, a joke on me, bringing me back to Turkey. They really wanted me to come back, and I understood it because I wanted, I've always wanted to go back. As I told you, I love this stumble. You know, it's not the dark place that the movie makes for me. I didn't like the prison, don't get me wrong, uh -huh. but I love the city, and I actually got along real good with the people. So I wanted to go back. I wanted to heal this, this breach, because for 30 years, I was the most hated man in Turkey, especially because of that 
back, and they flew me back. The Turkish police paid for my ticket, flew me back to Istanbul. Uh, a lot of my friends in New York, when I told them that, you know, the Turks want to fly me back and make peace and have a conference, they all said, hey, did you ever hear about, come to Yankee Stadium this Saturday. You'll claim your prize, and you get there in your 100 traffic tickets. You're getting arrested. But I knew the Turks wanted what I wanted, which was to heal this breach and to make it better. They didn't want any more bad Billy Hayes publicity. So they flew me back, and I got a chance to talk in front of this big conference to the Turkish TV and newspapers and talked about the fact that, no, the film doesn't represent their country. But, you know, I really love Istanbul, and I've been here before. And that was a big turning point for us in terms of my relationships with Turkey. And since then, I've been doing all sorts of things. Uh, Turkish people have been coming to see my play. Uh, every October 29th, the uh, Turkish flag is raised above Wall Street to commemorate the founding of the Turkish Republic by uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And last October, they had me come to Wall Street and raise the Turkish flag above Wall Street. The symbolism of that is priceless. Uh, it's, it's exquisite, Billy. I, I saw. I was so and... caught up. I'm standing there. I've got the Turkish ambassador behind me, the number one Turkish military general in the United States on one side, the number one Turkish police representative on the other side, 40 or 50 very prominent New York Turkish people, and all of us were all verklempt and kind of in, in the edge of tears because of the emotionality of the moment. Oh. And to raise that flag for me, there was a completion. There was a, there was a, a healing energy that was just wonderful. I, I, I quite loved it. And I've had certain people coming to my show, talking to me afterwards. And I, you know, I do a Q&A after every performance, and a lot of them have spoken afterwards. And that feels good. That's a nice completion. I, I like that. This is such a beautiful story of peacemaking. Yeah. Uh, do, you, yeah. do, do you tell that story in your one-man show? Uh, actually, I don't. Uh, tell it per se in the the show is about seventy four seventy five minutes now, mm-hmm. and I end it when I uh, when I leave Europe, flying back to the United States. But invariably, the story comes up in Q and A afterwards. And yes. if it doesn't, I, I make a point of mentioning it because sure. I, I want people to hear that for what it represents for me and for the nation of Turkey. And just because it's so bizarre to think about. I mean, yeah, who would imagine a, Billy Hayes raising the Turkish flag above Wall Street when this movie came out and all this? You know, there were fire bombings at theaters. There were protests in the street. I did a, I was up doing something in Toronto, and there were uh, Turkish protesters out in front of the auditorium, and there were Greek and Armenian protesters protesting the Turks on the other side, and then there was a fire, uh, there was a bomb threat, they had to clear the theater out, and they sniffed the dogs, and then they brought us back in again, <laughs> and everybody sat down, and I'm standing at the lectern thinking, I hope those dogs did a good job sniffing out any bombs, but it was a very in- intense time, and to have it all sort of come together again there on Wall Street was, it felt good. Healing. I keep beautiful, beautiful healing, and beautiful story about a man's and beautiful story about peace. And if if me and Turkey can get back together again, there's hope for the world. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I mean, uh, I'm so touched by your story because I was just thinking how it's amazing. Like it's similar to my case where 
where a particular mythological story came to to mark my life when I was 27 years old, meaning my meeting Timothy Leary. And, uh, and, and it's still alive. That story is still sure. alive and playing itself out just in a similar way. That well, we, uh, have, we have a lot of similarities in our life in terms of that, because it, that was my age, too. Uh, I was arrested when I was 23, and I escaped when I was 28. And in the next year or two, all this stuff was happening. And it's still happening. It's, right, right. You know, uh, people say, don't you get tired of talking about Midnight Express? Actually, I do. There was a time, I sure. don't know, six, eight, ten years ago where I just, I, I didn't want to talk about any of this stuff anymore. I'm, you know, I'm an actor. I've been doing lots of theater and I write stuff and I've got other stuff going on. But the story itself is still central to my whole life, before and after. It was all before and after. And I, what I realized, I kept thinking people have to be sick to death of hearing all this Billy Hayes Midnight Express bullshit. What I discovered is the opposite. We did that Locked Up Abroad show, and the response to it was overwhelming. There's a whole new generation who has never heard the story and who is fascinated by it. And there are all of these people of my age, our age, those who haven't gotten completely senile and Alzheimer's, they're, they're still interested. So it, it's, it's resonating, and it's given me a chance to travel the world and do this show and as an actor, what a gift to be able to get up on stage and do something that means so much to you as an actor. And I've had this for almost two years now. You know, we do the show somewhere and you'll do six or eight or ten or thirty or forty performances. So tell, tell Billy, tell how the show was born, how this whole new phase of your life came uh, about. The response to the Locked Up Abroad program that you mentioned on the air. Oh, this is the National Geographic program. Well, no, no. National Geographic. Yes, that's locked up abroad. The response to that was overwhelming, and it made me realize people still want to hear this story. And I had, for, for many years, I'd, I'd wanted to somehow bring things together and put a perspective on it. I'm 68 now. This all happened when I was, you know, 20s, in my late 20s. I escaped when I was 28. I'm 68 now. In fact, the 40th anniversary of my escape is coming up here in October. The 45th anniversary of my arrest is coming up in October. But to be able to talk about it with this perspective and to offer what I have as a writer and as a performer was just such a, a treat and a gift. And I hooked up with a producer, a woman named Barbara Ligeti, who loved my script and loved this whole project. And she helped me hone this down to what it's become. We took it to the Edinburgh Film, uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland Great festival. two years ago. Yeah. And we did, um, we did the last three nights of the festival. And the response was such that we're still doing the show now two years later, literally doing it around the world and traveling and doing stuff. You're so, blown away by that, aren't you? You're just blown away by that. I'm totally blown away by that. Yeah. I'm also blown away. You know, I've been doing theater and such and being in Hollywood for the last 40 years. You get so much smoke blown up your ass in Hollywood that you need an anchor just to keep from floating away. You know, mm -hmm. come here, I'll make you a star. We're going to do this. I've never had a producer like Barbara Ligeti. Everything she's told me, she's make happen. She's quite incredible. And she's, of course, become a friend now. Way back, she said, be careful what you wish for when we put this together. She mm -hmm. said, we're going to be hooked together, hip, hip to hip, for the next couple of years mm -hmm. doing this show around the world. And I thought, yeah, okay. I mean, I've heard this before. And that's what we've been doing. And uh, her partner, Jeffrey Altschuler, uh, 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 he is now the director of the show, and we get to work together. He, uh, as a director, he's also a writer. 
and he's been an editor for years. And so as a writer, I get to talk to him about word choices. I mean, we spend, we spend time talking about the subtle differences between drift or float or wander. And we'll go back and forth on that for an hour, just because as a director, as a writer, he loves words. I, I love, love words. words. And it's such a treat to be able to keep honing the show. In each performance, I think a show should get better. It should get fuller. And the actor, the performer should settle more and more and more and more. And, and yet, obviously, find stuff in the moment and whatever comes through. And that's been a treat to do it in one city. And then after the last performance ends, invariably the last show of a play, of, and I've done dozens of theater pieces, the last show you discover something that's like, why, why didn't I discover this you know, back when we started? And then you're usually done. The play is over and you almost never get, get a to chance it. to go back to it and revisit yeah. it. Yeah. I get a chance every couple of weeks or every month or two, we go somewhere else and I have a chance to revisit it with all that, that has been. And after each show, uh, I don't even leave the stage actually. We do a little, the lights click out and click on and we do some clapping and that's nice. And then I do Q&A. And I learn a lot from the audience. In fact, as an actor, you learn so much from the You know if the show works or not from the audience. You don't need the reviews. You don't need the critics. Right, I guess right. you do in some ways, but what's the thing? If, if you believe the good reviews, you've got to believe the bad reviews, or just fuck them all, or don't read them all, or all that stuff. It's the audience who tells you if your show works. And in my case, since I do a Q&A, literally, I don't leave the stage, if half the audience is gone, if three-quarters of the people are gone during your Q&A, you know they didn't like the show. I've, right. I've done theater and pieces where, or either, either as an actor or as a director, where like once a week you'll have Q&A afterwards, and you've got seven actors out on the stage and four people left in the audience. You know, two of them are related to someone in the cast. The other guy's drunk <laughs> and doesn't even know he's in the theater, and then there's the, the old lady who sleeps in the front row at every show. So, you know, they didn't like the show. Right. When they all stay, that tells you something. And everybody stays. And the Q&A, you know, they have to, like, click the lights on to get me off because I'll do Q&A forever. I love Q&A. And it's been a really rewarding experience to hear questions from people. You know, invariably get some of the same questions or something different or little shades of things. But people, would, especially in the beginning, people would be asking me a question about something. And in my head, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I said that. I, I already did said that in the show. But what I'm really thinking is, but that obviously they didn't get it, so they right. either missed it and yeah. or I didn't present it in a way that they got it, but I want them to get it. So it's a little thing that maybe we can adjust. Jeffrey, my director, again, we'll talk about some of the Q&As afterwards. You know, a lot of stuff you have to kind of ignore, but other stuff that's very important, it's like, oh, we just, you know, I didn't see the forest for the trees, and they pointed out a tree to me here, and it's like, oh, okay. okay, so I, okay. And it helps the show, and the show keeps getting better and fuller. And I can't wait to get up again. It's been like two months now. I've been moving, moving my houses and in between shows, and I'm so ready to do the show again. So, Billy, tell us, um, um, because this sounds like um, it's an evolving story. So first there was the book, and then there was the movie that, uh, that sort of strayed far away from, uh, from the reality, and then National Geographic that's much closer. Nat Geo uh, was the, the locked up the broad show that was on Nat Geo Network. That gave me a chance to tell the story again, but in my own words. And then they recreated it, but it's, you know, me against the blue screen. So I have a chance to really talk about all this stuff. And that was wonderful. And mm -hmm. then 
this incredible uh, Danish uh, choreographer director uh, Peter Schaufus. That's and amazing. That has always been one of his favorite books and stories. And he does ballets. He's trying to break the boundaries of what normally is, is accepted in, in terms of ballet material. He's done ballet about about Elvis Presley and about the Rolling Stones. And he did one on Midnight Express. And he invited uh, Wendy and I to London to this incredible theater. The in, in, in London, and we did, I, I watched uh, three or four times, we watched the Midnight Express Ballet, which, you know, again, when I tell my New York friends, they're doing the Midnight Express Ballet, it's like, oh, you, you bring your tutu and you bring your slippers, and like, <laughs> it was an incredible performance. They used some of the music from from the film, some of Georgia Moroder's music, and they also used, um, I think it was uh, Mozart to balance things. Mm-hmm. And I was up in a little balcony booth, a little because I needed to get away from things. I'm looking down over the audience, and I at one point I saw down in the front row a, a really elderly English gentleman dressed to the tees with with a top hat and a whole you know the real uh, ballet thing with a cane and everything else. And right next to him, a totally punked out, rings in her nose and different color hair young hippie girl uh-huh. and, but they're both fascinated watching this show it's like peter accomplished what he wanted which is to open the world of ballet and widen its scope and it was an amazing experience for me to see <laughs> this ballet up there Beautiful. and now i'm doing my one-man show on it there's all these various iterations of the story so so tell us billy what uh, what is uh, what what has evolved what is different in your one man show. What have you? What are you able to say that uh, that couldn't be said in these evolving stories through the uh, years? The whole show for me is it, it, it's it's leading to the. There's a central point in in my experience in jail and in the play where I literally drop some LSD and have an experience on my bunk in prison of this incredible... I was meditating on my bunk. Uh-huh. And suddenly this this in, immense glowing ball of energy opened up out of my chest and my heart was pulsing out this light of love that totally overwhelmed me. I mean, tears are pouring down my face because I. that's when I realized this is my reason for being. Mm. Simply to love. And I never knew that. All the cats in the, in the cell block, all these mangy cats that run around the prison, were all gathered up around me, on my bunk, on my lap, purring, along with the vibe. And t- till this day, till this moment, till right now when I'm talking to you, that's the vibe I'm always seeking in myself and in yeah. other people. And that's the truest thing I know. My head and my balls lead me astray. If I listen to my heart, right. it leads me in the right direction, and it's... It made all five years of prison worth it for me, just to learn that, because that changed everything for me. Wow. And that's, part, that's a central part of the show. Mm-hmm. Although I don't want people to know that, because then it sounds like you're preaching to them. So it just becomes part of everything else that comes up. But that's really the heart, for me, of why I did this show. It's really amazing, the, the, history, the history of LSD. I mean... I was once uh, in 1983. Uh, I was going to go on a boat uh, from uh, from Tahiti to Miami, and um, just uh, as crew on a boat. 
And after about uh, five or six days at sea, I realized that the people on this boat were abusive and I wanted to get off the boat. And I got off the boat in the farthest atoll in Polynesia. I mean, the very last piece of land before going to the high seas on the way to um, back to the States. And uh, it happened to be a very small resort there. So I was lucky they they disembarked me there. And and then the next day, I met this young Polynesian on the beach. And uh, we talked a bit and he said to me, do you have some LSD? And of course, I'm talking um, many, many years ago and not in this country. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I said to him, well, yeah, I mean... When I'm abroad, I might, I might sometimes have some. And, uh, and so I said, meet me tomorrow. I will give you, I will give you a hit. And uh, he met me on the beach next day, and uh, I gave him that hit of LSD, and he gave me the most beautiful black pearl. <laughs> because for him, you know, the black pearls were growing right there. And so you reminded me when you said you dropped some LSD on your bunk in the prison in Turkey about how extraordinary the... I actually love uh, LSD. I, I think it's something... I think everyone should trip at least once just to show them, <laughs> just to make them aware of, of how limited our perception is um, and and expand their, their views of... of the world and life and of themselves and of reality, whatever that means. Uh, I actually quite like LSD. I used to do it a lot, um, but not for a long time. Of course. I think it's a younger thing, but certainly yes. for me it was anyway. But yes, they, yes. they're beginning to use again. You know, it became demonized uh, back when the whole war on drugs, the idiocy of the war on drugs uh, started. But I believe they're beginning to use it again on um, psychologically disturbed patients. Oh, yeah, lots of... Schizophrenia uh, and all sorts of stuff to maybe help give them some perspective. You know, that is the perspective that that is. It's just I, we're not aware of it most of the time. I think it opens us up in so many ways. And, you know, there are a lot of people who say, oh, you know, my son killed himself because he was tripping and he jumped out a window. And, you know, how can you possibly say that? It's like, I, I don't say it. I'm not arguing with you, and I certainly feel for your son. But that's a rare exception, and who knows why he jumped out a window, or if he fell, or if he thought he could fly. Uh, I don't know. But the drug itself is an amazing experience, and it offers a, a lot to people. And it's really wonderful that there are a lot of other medicines that have come about. Sure. Uh, well, the legality of, of weed now. I mean, I've been a proponent since before I get out of jail of legalizing pot. In fact, I have a letter home in uh, the Midnight Express letters was the book about all of my letters that I sent home to my family and my friends, and particularly my one girlfriend. And everybody kept my letters and gave them back to me when I got back, and I used them to write the original Midnight Express book. Then I put all the letters in a cardboard box into the attic for 30 years, and then Wendy made me clean the attic one day, and I hate doing that. If I'm going to do it, I take everything out, and I put everything out, and I took this whole thing out, shitty old moldy letters, and put them out by the garbage. 
she may be bringing them back in, of course. I told this to my friend, who's also my lawyer, and he said, what letters? I said, oh, moldy old 40-year-old. He said, well, let me read a few. I said, no, you don't want to. He said, let me read a few. So he read a few. He said, you need to take all these letters and type them out, annotate them. Don't change a word, which was the hard part, because to read what you think you know about life at 23 and 24 wow. is so embarrassing at sometimes. But at other times, it became quite fascinating to me. So in the letters, there's one of them in 1972 where I write to my dad saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that the California pot initiative failed, but it's an idea whose time has come. I was young, mm -hmm. I was naive, but it has come now, low these 40 years later. And yeah. the, the efficacy of the medical marijuana, of, of how, how much it can be used to help people, it's, it's, you can't argue about, against it now. No. And more from my point of view, the insanity of locking up kids for smoking pot, that is just, you know, our country, we have more people in prison than anywhere in the world. And half of them are in there for consensual crime. Half of them are for the drug crime. Absolutely. It should all be legal. Teach people about drugs. Teach your kids about drugs. You know, when you tell them, well, you smoke a joint, it's the road to hell. Next thing you know, you stick needles in your arm. And the kid smokes a joint a couple of times and realizes everything you said is not true. Then they ignore everything that they hear about drugs. And that's to their peril, because you need to know about drugs. There's a lot of drugs. Not all of them are good for you. And there are some, some horrible of them are good drugs. For you. you need to do it in a certain way. Other stuff you need to be aware of. So when they ignore everything, then suddenly they're, you know, out in the desert doing, uh, doing meth, and their teeth are rotting out of their heads, and they're that's gone. Right. So right. I talk about it all the time. It's finally happening. I mean, it's legal in so many places. Unfortunately, it's still a Class A number one felony on the federal mm -hmm. law, but even that's going to change. That's, it's all changing. It's changing. Arguments against legalization of pot have fallen by the wayside. Even the places where morally or conservatively they don't think you should be allowed to do that to yourself, uh, they're really in the economic benefits. I mean, the states next to Colorado realize Colorado's making all this money off legal weed, true, and true. they're still trying to arrest and put people in jail. The only reason, of course, that, that that's good is for the, the uh, for-profit prisons, which are horrific <sighs> things that are happening in our country. <sighs> more so in the last 10 years, we bought, built more prisons than, than schools over the last 10 years, and the for-profit for prison you need prisoners, and the easy people to bust are potheads. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've been talking about that forever. I get a chance in every every country, every, every city I go to, Currently, yeah. I do radio and TV and talk show interviews to talk about the show and to talk about legality and to stop putting kids in jail. you got a 19-year-old son who you think has got a big problem because of marijuana. Well, he's got a problem. The pot's not... Probably not the problem, but it exacerbates it. Or, but you put him in jail, that's not going to solve his problem. Trust me. It'll wreck him. It'll wreck his family. I'm like one of the few people I know who actually went to jail, and it turned yeah. out to be a good thing for him. It's not it's, the case. It yeah, ruins lives. It destroys families. But it's still happening. You know, a lot of places now where it's changed, it's just that as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands of guys in jail, men and women, young and old, for, for marijuana. <laughs> so, Billy, I, I'm rambling again. I'm sorry. That's a subject that makes me crazy. Very important things to be said. I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm in the first row with you about yeah, that. I, I mean, Timothy Leary uh, was in solitary confinement for two and a half years for uh, a roach. 
yeah. a roach yeah. Yeah. and escape, but that's another story. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Billy, I, I want to ask you who is Billy Hayes today, spiritually, psychologically, and mainly. You've you've mentioned it before a couple of times, and I loved it. What is the heart of Billy Hayes today? It's glowing, is what it is. I'm very happy. Um, my wife loves me. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm free. Nobody's beating my feet. My wife still loves me. Life is good. Life is good. I'd love to win the lotto. That'd be nice. But otherwise, uh, I'm feeling I'm feeling really good. And I'm feeling very lucky and just just privileged to be able to to touch the world, to touch people with this show. It's um, it's so rewarding for me. I so love doing it, and the response that I get back from people is quite overwhelming. And um, I'm a lucky guy. I'm a very lucky guy. That's uh, that's pretty amazing for somebody who, in my own words, is is living an archetypal life. Yeah, well, there's that whole other element. I have people who I meet. They say, "Wow, dude, you're like a cultural icon." Yeah, well, ain't that the shits? Billy I mean, how weird is that? Billy but, the kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were traveling somewhere in the car, and we went past the thing that's a sign. Maybe it was in New Mexico or somewhere. The sign says, "This is the last." This, in this jail, was Billy the Kid was arrested in his last blah blah blah. So I got a picture of me standing next to that sign. <laughs> I thought good. was kind of appropriate. That's good. But um, I'm I'm healthy and I'm happy and I'm I'm free and Wendy loves me and I'm a lucky guy. That's all I keep coming up with. Billy, uh, we've come to the to the end of this conversation, and. Uh, I want to thank you with all my heart. I'm so happy to have you on Future Primitive. Thank you, Joanna. It's a pleasure to be talking to you, and uh, we will talk again. Oh, we will talk again. All um, right. All right. Thank you, darling. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste to you.